Uh, but for right now, as we've gathered, uh, we've gathered to worship, and with everything that's already happened in our service, uh, you'll be grateful to know my sermon's a little bit shorter this week. And I didn't even know why, but I know why now. So if you would turn to uh, the scriptures, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. If you brought a Bible, open it up and uh, join there. We're going to be uh, in most of the chapter, actually, before we're done here. Um, but our reading today begins at verse 13. John, chapter 2 beginning at verse 13. And let's say a word of prayer as we prepare to read this. Lord Jesus, I, I just want to thank and praise you that you are present with us. You're present with us as we've gathered together and you're present with us through your word. Would you speak to us now? Would you change us? I believe that each and every one of us has been drawn here by your love and by your presence. And we pray that you would use this time that we have set apart for you to change us to become more like you when we leave than when we came. It is in Jesus' name we pray. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days? But the temple that he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was there the day that Jesus walked into the temple. He just stood there at first, almost as in disbelief. And then I saw it. I saw that fire growing in his eyes. I'd come from Galilee to the place where God said he'd meet us. Did it feel like a scam? Yeah. I was never able to afford a lamb for my sacrifice, so I had to settle for one of those overpriced pigeons. As a young wife and mother, there's a word you never expect to be called. Widow. I didn't realize how safe I'd felt with my husband around until he was gone. And then it just felt like being exposed on every side with nothing in between your babies and a world of vipers. But me, just me. So I stood there that day in the temple and I watched as Jesus grabbed a whip and drove those businessmen out of the temple, 
hoard their money on the ground. But more than that, there was something about the expression on his face. I recognized it. He swung that whip like vipers were threatening his kids. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> Took me three years to figure out what he meant. <laughs> Slow learner. <laughs> he wasn't talking about the building. That was a place where dishonest men put their grimy fingerprints all over God's glory. They defiled the intimate process of worshiping Him. That day wasn't about destruction. It was about hope. Because now, knowing God is all about Jesus. As I think about that day back in the temple, and I remember what Jesus did and how He did it, it felt like being rescued. Life can still be brutal. The kids' appetites are still growing. I still cry a lot. But he made a place for me to be still, where rest and trust meet right there at God's feet. And the price of that access, it's paid because of Jesus. He conquered death, and that's how I make it through life. He conquered death, and that's how I make it through life. And that summarizes the journey that we've been on here in our Lenten series that we're calling Back to the Basics. It's our third Sunday as we focus on what we would consider some of the most fundamental basics of our faith as they're revealed to us through Jesus' journey to the cross, through his death on Good Friday and beyond to eternal life on Easter. And today our, our scripture reading kind of brings up a very basic question of authority. And specifically, the question is what role does authority play in your relationship with Jesus? And, and I don't mean like the fact that Jesus is in charge of everything. We, we may already have that assumption and be operating out of it, but, but how does that truth play out in our everyday lives? And we're going to ask that question by looking at two different examples in God's word. The second example is the one we read in our reading today about clearing the temple. But there's a, an example that comes just before it in the Gospel of John. And part of the reason is we're to read these two stories together. And that example is the first miracle that Jesus ever performed, which was the turning of the water into wine at a wedding feast. And so if you're in the Bible, I want to turn now to, to John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. How many of you heard this story before? Just show of hands. I'm not going to make you tell it. But you know the story, okay? Um, but I want to just kind of review a few parts of it. Verse 1, it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. 
Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to Jesus, they have no more wine. Now, just stopping right there, there's a lot happening, and most of which we can actually relate to. How many of you have ever been to a reception at a wedding? Show of hands. Okay, show of hands at home, I can't see you, but I trust that you're raising your hands. We've all been to weddings before. In this particular instance, and what was the cultural norm at this time was that there was an open bar. And unfortunately, while the party was still going, it, was, it wasn't finished yet. They ran out of everything except Diet 7-Up. And it wasn't just Diet 7-Up. It was like that, that, that cheap generic brand that tastes a little bit like cough syrup. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, this is embarrassing because at this point in the wedding, the father hasn't even danced with his daughter yet. And so what are we going to do? The groom's family should have, should have provided for all of this. They haven't. It's embarrassing. And who knows? Maybe Mary, Jesus' mother, is friends with the parents. We don't know, but she brings the issue up to her son. And don't read into it. You know the story, and so, so don't read into what Jesus is about to do. She does not ask him to do anything specifically. She doesn't say, you know, you could turn water into wine and fix this problem. She doesn't even ask him specifically to do anything, though she's definitely inferring that he could help somehow. Maybe she just wants him to go run to the store. But in any case, here's how Jesus responds. Look at this, verse 4. Woman, and this is not like derogatory, like don't call your mom that, but in Jesus' day that was okay. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And so Jesus questions why she's asking, says his hour has not yet come. It's a phrase you're going to read over and over again if you read through the Gospel of John at different points in the story where you think this is the moment that matters, where you think this is the climax, where you think this is where the story is headed, and then you see that it's not, that this isn't what Jesus came to do. And I want to pause at that moment because we can relate to that too. I mean, how many of us have ever come before Jesus and prayed for something that in that particular moment feels like it's more important than anything in your life. And sometimes those are, those are significant things. Sometimes they're, they're not that significant. But, but we come before God and we say, Jesus, will you just save me from blank? Maybe it's, will you, will you help me find my car keys? How many people have ever prayed that prayer before? Like, just be honest, right? Right? Raise your hand if you did it this morning. You're here. You're not late. That's good. <laughs> right? We prayed that prayer before. Something like that. Maybe it's more significant. Maybe you say, Jesus, will you save me and help me find a new job? Will you heal me from my disease? Will you help me forgive or help this person to forgive me? They're all the same prayer. Jesus, will you help turn water into wine? And that's not what Jesus came to do. That's not why he came to earth. That's not why he, he descended from the throne of heaven. You know that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to die on the cross so that three days later he could rise from the grave and in doing so in all of that he could save you and I from our sins. That's why he came. And so with all that on Jesus' plate, can he possibly be bothered by all the other things that seem so insignificant in comparison? 
Can he be bothered when you lose your keys? Can he be bothered by your loss of a job? Can he be bothered by a family who is about to be embarrassed because they ran out of wine and the wedding isn't over yet? Look at what happens. Verse 5. Jesus' mother said to the servants, this is after he said, why do you bother me with this? My time has not yet come. This isn't why I came to earth. This is what his mother says. She says to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. I love that. Love that. And the reason that I love that is because even though she now knows that this problem is relatively insignificant in comparison to where Jesus is going, she still has the faith to tell him about it and she knows that he cares enough to help. And friends, I'm pointing this out because the same is true for you and me. The same is true for you and me. If, if you're looking for your car keys and it's stressing you out because it's the third day this week that you're going to be late and you've been running around and the kids aren't doing anything you ask and they used all the hot water and you took a cold shower and there was just one bowl of cereal left and you took out the milk and you poured it and it was curdled. And so you get in the car and you're starving and nothing is going well. If you come before God and you pray that to Jesus, he cares. He cares. Whether it's significant or not, he cares. You know why? Not because the thing that you're praying is always the most significant, but because you're significant to Jesus. He cares about you. And so if something's going on in your life, if something's going on in your mind, if something has taken over your anxieties, he cares because he cares for you. And I'm not making this up. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, Give all your worries and cares to God. Read the last part with me. For he cares. I can't hear you. For he cares about you. If you care about something, Jesus cares because Jesus cares about you. And if you don't know the rest of the story, we see that play out. He instructs the servants to fill these six stone jars with water and then turns the water into wine. And it's really good wine because it's really good when God answers our prayers such good wine that the people are drinking it and they're thinking to themselves, man, why didn't they take this wine out first at the very beginning? That's what they should have done. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. It wasn't what he came to do. It was a sign, though. It was a sign through which he has revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. And the thing that we're going to learn for the rest of our time here in the Gospel of John, is that Jesus uses his authority to care for you. He uses his authority to care for you. He cares enough to bring more wine. He cares enough to spare the embarrassment of this family. He cares about his mom enough. That when these people that care, that she cares about, are going through this situation, he's willing to come to her side and help. And it's immediately after that that we start to read the story that we read today. So again, John wants us to progress through this. And we get to verse 13, and again it says this, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus then went to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found the people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and there were other people that were sitting at tables exchanging money. 
This is immediately after the wedding that John then brings us with Jesus and the disciples to the temple. And so we can look at this and say, okay, how are the two related? Well, there's a couple of ways. First of all, you can't celebrate a wedding without wine in Jesus' day. It's essential. It's not essential today. My wife and I, we didn't have wine. We didn't have an open bar. We didn't have any of that stuff at our wedding. Um, It might be customary, but it's not essential. It was essential in Jesus' day. It's what you did. It's what you had to do. And so that's one way these two things are the same. In the temple, when they came into the temple for, for, for for the Jewish Passover to worship and to ask God for forgiveness, what was essential for them, that was you needed animals. You needed animals to sacrifice. And on top of that, you couldn't purchase those said animals with the money in your pocket because this was the time of the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire, the coins, you know, like our our coins and our dollar bills, they've got presidents' faces on them. They had Caesar's face on it. And that would have been considered, based on Old Testament law, a graven image. And so if you're going to buy a sacrifice that you're going to use in worship, you couldn't use your dirty money. And so you had to come into the temple and they had to exchange it for temple currency. And there's no problem in any of this. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. These are customs, just like having wine at a wedding is a custom. There's nothing wrong with any of it. A lot of it's rooted in law. What we find is wrong is when we learn that there's corruption taking place. There's corruption taking place among the Jewish leadership. They were overcharging for these required sacrificial animals. They were were gouging the people who were coming at the currency exchange. And again, like the wedding, what it ended up doing is it left people who came to celebrate, in this case, the presence of God and forgiveness, it left them with less than what they needed. And so those are all the similarities between the wedding and the temple, but there's also some pretty significant differences. At the wedding, they ran out of wine. And that's not that terribly significant. Even in Jesus' day, I mean, it is, but, 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 but in the grand scheme of things, we don't know why. Maybe they had too many guests. What a good problem to have, right? Maybe they just didn't plan well enough. Maybe the family wasn't wealthy enough to buy enough, but nobody stole the wine. There wasn't anything going on. There was no mischievous story behind it. And so Jesus shows grace and mercy in providing for their needs. In the temple, that is not the case. The reason they don't have what they need is is because there's corrupt influences. And these influences are getting in the way of a God and the people that he desperately wants to be in the presence of. He desperately wants them to come into his own presence. And these people are blocking their way. And so verse 15, it says, this is what Jesus did. He made a whip out of cords. He drove all from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples watched all of this happening. And they remembered what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's a direct quote from the Old Testament Psalms. Psalm 69. It's the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament because it expresses the sacrifice that Jesus came to make for us. It expresses the heart of a person who is in pain, 
who is experiencing injustice and is crying out to a God who saves. And I would encourage you, read the whole thing. We don't have time to read the whole thing this morning, but it's a good psalm. And you'll know what I'm talking about, but I want to read to you just the first five verses of the psalm. Psalm 69, verse 1, it says this. Save me, O God, from the waters that have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there's no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail. I'm looking for my God. Those who hate me and don't have any reason to hate me, they outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I'm forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Friends, this is a man who suffers and who's largely suffering for things that he has nothing no control over whatsoever. He didn't do anything wrong. He's crying out to God, and he's crying out for passion. And it's in the middle of that cry, he says in verse 9, for zeal for your house consumes me. For zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal for the place in which people come to be in the presence of God. Now, the Hebrew word for zeal here is a, is a strong word. I think zeal is strong in English, but, but in Hebrew, it would be used to describe a, a kind of a jealous zeal. It would be like a, the kind of zealous love that, that a husband has for his wife or a wife has for her husband. It's, it's, it's a parent's love for their children, and especially in a circumstance where they're in danger, where they would do anything for those that they love. And the reason that this is quoted often in the New Testament is that the authors realized that this zeal, when they watched the life of Jesus, was meant to describe him. And that's the imagery that they're seeing as they're watching him throwing tables and coins and getting so frustrated because these people have come to be with God and to experience his presence and they're being separated because of all this corruption. Verse 18, the Jews responded to him and said, what sign can you show us? You just made water into wine, right? What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they said, but it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? And they weren't kidding. It had taken that many years to build this temple, to rebuild this temple, and they were still working on it at that day when Jesus was standing there in the temple courts. And he walks in and says, if you tear this thing down, I can rebuild it in three days. What does this mean? He has zeal for this, but is it zeal that he has for a building? Is the sign that he's going to perform going to have anything to do with physical bricks and mortar? No. And John wants you to know exactly what that means. Verse 21, he says, The temple that Jesus was talking about was not that temple. It was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered what he said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus came to become the temple. He came to become the temple and he came to become the sacrifice. And not only did he become the temple and become the sacrifice, but he also came to pay the cost. 
And that's how it would be rebuilt. The suffering in Psalm 69 would become the suffering of Jesus. Why? Because if Jesus could become the temple, no one would have to go to him anymore because God would now come and be with you. Because see, what Jesus promised his disciples and what happened in the book of Acts after Easter was the promise that he made that he would be with us always to the very end of the age and that with us would mean that his spirit, the Holy Spirit would come and that he himself would not be the only temple anymore but you would be the temple. You would become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Like we teach our kids, Jesus lives in your heart. It's true that you would become a temple of the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so that's all theology, right? And it's important that we understand this. But let's let's bring it down to, to what this means. If If Jesus became the new temple so that God's presence could come to all people, and if that presence comes to you and it comes to me through the Holy Spirit living in us that we might become a temple for God, what that means is that Jesus has zeal for you. Jesus has zeal for you. He cares about you. He cares for you, not a house, not a temple, not a church. He cares for a people. Jesus cares. And he cares enough to turn water into wine, and he cares enough to rid the temple of anything that will draw his precious people away from his grace and love and forgiveness that he has come and paid everything to bring. And so it brings us back to the question I asked at the beginning, what role does the authority of Jesus play in your relationship with him today? What role does the authority of Jesus play? Are you more interested in Jesus turning water into wine? Not that that's not important. Not that Jesus does not care. Not that he does not find the things that are significant to you significant to him because you're significant to him. But what role does the authority of Jesus play in your life? Are you more interested in that or are you willing to allow him to also cleanse you as a temple of the Holy Spirit and draw all of the things inside of you that are taking you away from him to bring you back to him? And there's a simple word that we use to describe that in the church and in the scriptures. It's the word repentance. Repentance literally means making a 180 degree turn away from the things that take us away from God and pointing us back toward God. And it's a theme for the season of Lent that we find ourselves in right now. And it's the tradition that we are going to be participating in and practicing this week. Now, I understand we're halfway through Lent, so most of you are already on board with this, but I know some of you are new. And so when you came in, there's an office. You can grab this online. You can get it on our website. If you're on our email list, you'll get this this afternoon. But each week, we have been doing things outside of church to invite the Spirit of God to change us 
from within. And we've been doing the things that generations of Christians have done during this season of Lent to prepare for Easter. The first week, we fasted. We all picked a day, and we took a day of fasting. The second week, uh, this last week, we lamented, and we spent an hour alone with God. Because alone and silence without cell phones and TVs and kids and work and all of that is hard to come by. And so we spent an hour doing those things. And this week, we're going to focus on confusion and repentance. Bringing before God the things in our lives that matter. Just like the, the wine, we, we, we learn how to bring it before God, and then we learn to repent. And so I want to encourage you to grab this if you haven't gotten it already, and spend some time this week alone with God doing just that. And as we prepare to do that, let's now prepare as we pray. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are present with us now and always. We thank you that, that you have been with us. I, I recognize that for, for many of us, we've just now begun to, to, to come back into, into what we see as, as our physical temple on earth, our church. And so help us to be reminded that that there's something beautiful about what happens in this place and in any place where the people of God gather to worship and to sing and to pray. But we don't have to go anywhere for those things to happen because those things begin in us. And they begin in us not because of anything we bring before you, but because you have brought your Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, that you are a God who so desperately loves us, who so wants to be with us, that you left heaven and you came down and you died and you rose again so that we could become the temple, so that there's nowhere on this earth that we could go that you would not be, that you would be with us always because you care, because you care because you care when we're running late, because you, you care when we're stressed out, because you care when our kids aren't behaving, because you care when we're not getting along with our spouse, because you care when, when we're dealing with physical issues, when we're sick and we can't find healing, because you care when we're guilty and we need forgiveness, you care. You care when we run out of wine at a wedding that you care so much that, that you also care enough to come into us to cleanse us from all of the things that draw us away from your care and your love. You're not a legalistic God. You're a God that wants to be there for us. And in order for you to be there for us, we need to turn away from the things that draw us away from you. That's what this season of Lent is about. And we all have things. We've all made mistakes We've all given you less importance in our lives than we know we're supposed to, and you don't hold that over our heads. It's your grace that says that you've already saved us from those things. What you call us to do is to come before you and receive the gift that's already been given, your forgiveness, your presence, and to let go of the things that we may have taken and put in their place. And so God, I pray. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to do that now, that we might not leave this church without doing that. That we might leave behind in this place the things that take us away from you, 
but also this week, God, that we would turn to this guide, that we would read your word and that you would stir in our hearts this opportunity to repent that we might be saved.